This is the 2D10 Podcast. You better listen. I am joined today by Neil Ramon Price. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, thank you for having me. And so um, I, I actually have a little bit of a dual agenda here. Um, you know, I talked to Matthew Dawkins and he kind of put me in conversation with you to talk about Scion and the new book that's in Kickstarter, but also like you've developed some books that I wanted to talk to you about beyond <laughs> just like Scion. Cause I'm sure, I don't know if you've heard, I, I won't assume anything, but um, I'm a big fan of Vampire the Masquerade. And obviously, um, you were involved pretty heavily in Beckett's Jihad Diary. So I, I do plan at some point, if you're okay with it, picking your brain about that as well. Oh, absolutely. I, I could talk about Beckett's for days. Good, good. I, I was watching some interviews with you. And so I was like, ah, oh, I really want to like get in there and have a chat with them. So um, let's just start off, if you could, for people who aren't familiar with it, because a lot of the people that listen to my podcast are familiar with you know, World of Darkness and Vampire the Masquerade and might not be as familiar with what you're working on now with the new Kickstarter. And, you know, I'm only just recently getting involved in it myself. Would you mind just kind of like explaining to people who are listening what Scion is and what kind of game it is and what experience you might have as a player? Sure. So uh, Scion is a contemporary game of modern myth and epic heroism. Its first edition was published in 2007 by White Wolf, actually, uh, and it very quickly gained an enthusiastic following. It won the Ennies Game of the Year Award. Uh, originally, it was slated to be a three-book series encompassing a, a child of the gods um, <clears throat> uh, uh, ascent to godhood. So you had hero, demigod, and god. Um, and then, yes, you do play the children of actual gods in this. Um Gods walk the earth. They never fully went away. They wander our roads and our cities, mingling with the teeming masses of humanity. Um, the first edition was very heavily inspired by American gods. And the second edition is very heavily inspired by the wicked and the divine by, by Kieran Gillen. Cool. Um, yes, I've been, I've been doing a lot of reading about, about Scion. And um, I was just curious, like, Obviously, there were some issues originally, I guess, in the high-end um, power levels of Scion that some people really complained about, like the system kind of not working out properly on those high ends. Um, what was really important for you when working on this second edition um, in regards to that? Like, what was the most important part of just like how to properly express the power level of these characters. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to get pretty deep into the storyteller storytelling weeds here. Okay, good. <laughs> so um, there's, there's really been three major iterative lines of the storyteller game system. Mm -hmm. um, you have the standard line that was in the revised world of darkness games way back in the day. Then you had mm -hmm. a sort of other line that got, brought into aberrant and trinity and some of those design decisions got folded back into the revised games um and then you had exalted which was its own its own beast uh but it still used storyteller um and then storytelling uh was of course the new world of darkness chronicles of darkness system which was definitely a a sibling of the other system like you mm. you could you could absolutely see the similarities and, and, and the similar genetic code, as it were. 
Uh, StoryPath, which is the system that, that powers Scion, is a little different. Um, it's I would say it's a cousin of those games. Mm-hmm. Um, and we definitely took inspiration from that, but we definitely folded in a lot of meta mechanics. Because what Storyteller doesn't actually do is it, it never does any adiegetic mechanics. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, if you look at a character sheet uh, for vampires or mages, there is nothing on the character sheet that represents something outside your character. Right. Um, there, you like you know you could have a command of fate or something, but that's your character's command of fate. Blood points represent the number of blood you have in your pool, and so on and so forth. Um, and it gets quantified very heavily. Even willpower is an abstract measure of how much heroic oomph you have left in the tank, right? Right. right. So. What I wanted to do, though, is I wanted to take advantage of a lot of the more indie and uh, more flexible design traditions, such as Fate, such as Cortex, such as Numenera, um, a whole whole swath of really great system design that uses explicit meta mechanics within there. And I wanted to be able to adapt Storyteller to do that because it doesn't ever actually do that except for maybe in Adventure. And right. even then, the developers kind of had a fight over whether dramatic editing was in character or not. And you can see that fight play out in the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, and it's a conversation I've had with, with folks, you know, playing the original world of darkness, like, you know, it's, it's really frowned upon too to, to sort of like use out of character knowledge and sort of metagame in character. So it's interesting that that would be a pretty important facet of, of this game and of the story path system. Well, so to, I mean, it's not so much using out of character knowledge as it is building, building in explicit player actions and player intent right. into the framework of the game and how that goes forward and making sure it's, it's done in a structured manner that the, that the story guide can respond to and deal with and sometimes even push back on with their own set of meta mechanics. Um, the other big thing about it is that I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial here. And okay. that's that storyteller doesn't do combat well at all. Y- yeah, that's and, it, and it never has. And exalted, right. um, exalted's kind of bolted onto it. I actually like the newest round of combat in V. I, I like both exalted third edition and the other uh, system we're coming up with, Essence, which is a much more smoother, streamlined version of exalted third edition. Um, and I also like the way V five does it. Um, in that V5 does a very narrative uh, combat sequence. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, who, who rolls initiative? It's really whoever the storyteller says goes first, goes first. And it combats a simple contested role, bing, bang, done. Yeah. Um, so really, storyteller only shines in combat when you heavily overwork the rules and exalted, or you just sort of give a, a structure for winging it in V5. The, the middle ground that a lot of Revised lived in and a lot of the first Scion lived in was sort of, a, sort of an in-between space that did neither of those two things particularly well. Right. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm, not trying to bash on, I'm not trying to bash on anyone, uh, any, any designer previous. I'm absolutely not. Um, all of our work is built upon their shoulders. So we're standing right. on the shoulders of giants already. Um, but... RPG design is iterative and something that was innovative five years ago, maybe old hat now. Yeah. And these systems were laid down 20, 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, so that was a very long winded way of explaining that story path was 
me taking a look at the storytelling system and other things, ripping it down to its bare bones and saying, how can we build this in a way that more explicitly prioritizes action and action gameplay and also allows for a heavy social framework and investigative games as well. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm, I appreciate you going into that because I had a bunch of different questions I was going to ask you kind of relating to all that and you managed to answer them all. So I appreciate that. Um, now working as a developer in this sort of like, um, new kind of Kickstarter environment where you basically have the manuscript finished when you take it to the public. What are some of the, like the main challenges that you face trying to develop material uh, or even just contributing as a writer or as freelance in sort of like a new environment where Kickstarter is kind of the primary way to get the material made? Right. So uh, our practice of putting the manuscript up is um, uh, hard one, hard one knowledge, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we have in previous gone to Kickstarter without finishing the manuscripts, and then life gets in the way. You know, yeah. uh, things happen. Um, you know, I, I think it's I think it's it's a lot of fans see us as big monolithic companies or big monolithic entities, but we're really just people sitting at their desks. typing out words and even even like paradox is maybe a couple hundred people at most right right? so you know whenever you criticize someone like that or whenever you kind of interject someone like that um you have to remember that there is a human being on the other end receiving that criticism um that's just not just bouncing off a big corporate wall so one of the things is that getting comfortable with that level of exposure, getting comfortable with the inevitable criticism that comes from that sort of thing is sort of necessary, growing a thicker skin, as it were. And, you know, no offense to the writers who, who don't do that because sometimes you have to have a very thick skin online. Right. Um, Scion is particularly challenged in that um, we place a priority on fidelity and research um, because these are real world religions that were we're dealing with and, and um, real world mythology that people yeah. believed in and in many cases continue to believe in uh, as their active religion. So we want to make sure that even though we're laying a level of fictionality over it by saying, well, these gods are, are, are in the real world and they're, you know, either having or adopting children to, to empower as their own scions and this and that. And we are sort of adapting it into a framework. We want to preserve a sense of fidelity so we try to go out of my out of our way to hire um, by POCs, uh, uh, writers writers of color, and um, you know people who either engage in the religion as a as a practice or who um, have an have a substantial academic knowledge of it. Right. Um, and fail if failing that, if we can't find a good writer who who fits either of those two criteria, we try to fit someone who is at least least of the same ethnic type as, as the, as the group we're writing about. So they can right. at least, you know, go for, uh, go forward a little bit easier. Alan Turner, for example, is an amazing RPG designer. Um, and he's, uh, he's part black, part Lakota. Um, he's based out of Chicago, really, really amazing writer. He did a game called Edragor that I highly recommend. Um, but, you know, I approached him and I said, Hey, you know, Alan, uh, we're, we're doing an Anishinaabe pantheon. 
the uh, pantheon of the Ojibwe people, and to a degree, some of the Iroquois as well. Um, I know you're not you're not from those tribes, but you can go speak to them a lot better than I can, yeah. and you can write what I what the the thing that we're going for. And he took up the challenge, and he spoke to a lot of elders. He spoke to a lot of a lot of folks who were willing to to talk about their talk about their mythology. And it, we have a great pantheon, I think. Yeah, I, I noticed, um, you know, of course, the the diversity of different gods, and and that's that's pretty common within um, just Scion in general. And uh, I, I did notice, you know, personally, like I don't follow any religion, but I can see like the level of respect that is placed, you know, and and honestly, the the differentiation between you know our world being, you know, the quote unquote real world and, you know, the world in the game, um, you know, as an object for, you know, play. Uh, I really appreciate, you know, seeing stuff like that. I, I was going to ask you, you know, just like on a personal note, what is the, like, what's the research, like, what's the level of research that you have to do to, to become knowledgeable on all of these different gods? Because, you know, me is just like sort of a, passive gamer podcaster, I, I open up this book and I'm like, holy crap, like there's so many things I don't know. You know, I can only imagine how hard it is to go through that research. What was, um, you know, what was that like for you? How did you kind of figure out that research model? So uh, we're still figuring it out in a lot of ways. <laughs> I should, I should say um, the Pantheon authors definitely love to do their homework, but um, we can't, ask every writer we, we, we can't our, our academics are dreadfully underpaid anyway and right. <laughs> we can't ask our writers to accept writer pay and also do this academic work for free right essentially um so they they do as much research as they're comfortable with and uh we sort of go from there now i should say that we place a very heavy emphasis on fidelity and 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 we do the research, but the, we try to make it so the players don't have to do any research themselves. They don't have to to take out seventeen books from the library, mm-hmm. and this has led to uh, some tension in the community at times because you have people who passionately believe in these things, and then they right. see a fictional portrayal of their religion or their mythology or even just mythology they've they've loved and studied. And they say to themselves, wait, I wouldn't do it that way. And right. so a lot of a lot of our difficulties is it, it lies in changing myths that are that are unpalatable or finding a way to sort of re reinterpret them and put that interpretation in a scion, uh, and also filling in the gaps between mythologies. Now, what do I mean by both of those? So Reinterpreting myths, um, if you go by m- many of the Greek and Roman myths, um, Hades kidnaps Persephone, right? Mm-hmm. And forcibly marries her, and she eats the food of the underworld. She eats a pomegranate seed, so she can't go back. And so her mother's um, Demeter, right? Demeter notices that she uh, her, her daughter's been kidnapped, and so she plunges the world into uh, into winter, because she's a, a goddess of growing crops and that sort of thing, and the harvest and agriculture and that sort of thing. So uh, then they basically cut a deal where Persephone will live on the surface for six months and then go back down to be with her husband for the other six months. Now, this doesn't give a lot of agency to Persephone. And in fact, it's kind of rapey. Yeah. Um, it's it's, <laughs> it's rapey at best. Um, 
So a lot of modern interpretations of that basically say that Demeter was kind of a controlling mother. She loved her daughter, but she was a little controlling. Persephone fell in love with and eloped with Hades. And the compromise was one that she brokered. So we're still trying to take the, the actual mythic events and we're trying to reinterpret them in a light that is a little bit better for modern sensibilities and a little bit easier to game with. Because at the end of the day, the comfort of people at the table and the experience that they have is more important to me than absolute absolute accuracy. Right. And fidelity is more important to me than accuracy, making it feel like the myth. Right. And, and and the truth of the matter is, you know, people are at a table to have fun and you have to keep it consistent with the, you know, the theme, the feel of the game that you're presenting. Um, so I definitely understand that. Um, now that, that said, like uh, our fans are, many of our fans are, are deep, deep mythology nerds. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of them are uh, people who follow reconstructionist faiths. And um, I've gotten compliments from people who follow reconstructionist faiths. And I've gotten n- the opposite of compliments from people who follow <laughs> reconstructionist faiths. Um, insults. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, that's, it's, 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 a learning curve each time because you have to you have to take these sorts of complaints or these sorts of notes um, as if the people are engaging in good faith. You always have to assume good faith, right? Um, especially when you're talking about marginalized groups, especially when you're talking about people who historically their their religion's been wiped out, and you have to say to yourself, okay, what is this person saying? And you know. And if they say, hey, you got this myth wrong, then you do the research and you see if you got it wrong and then you correct it if you can. That's why we have a very extensive errata process and we're doing an errata process on the Kickstarter itself. Yeah. So if you point out a factual error, I, w- I will do everything I can to possibly fix it. Um, but that said, like we, there are certain points where people will complain about something and be like, well, I wouldn't have done it this way. And it's like, cool. Well, we did it a different way. So, <laughs> right. I mean, right. at the end of the day, we we have to put out a final product, and we're not putting out we're not putting out a product that is, you know, uh, that, that 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 tells seventeen different versions of the same myth. We want to choose right. one mer- version of the myth. Right. And, well, so yeah. let's talk a little bit about um, what's coming up with the new product with, uh, with Demigod, what are some of the things that, um, players and, and, um, uh, can, can expect to see, you know, changed with that, uh, in the second edition of the game. So, um, to talk about Scion first edition again, mm-hmm. Scion first edition had those three books, hero, Demigod and God. And right. you, you were right before in that the, storytelling system doesn't really handle uh, scaling very well. So we actually introduced a mechanic called scale. When Rich Thomas told me to design the story path system, he said, I want it to be able to handle uh, men on the street and gods in the sky. So uh, that's the scale that I designed it on <laughs> and the way to work. And uh, we, we have a, a, a sort of narrative and dramatic axis that effects fall upon. Uh, that determines whether it affects you and called, you know, called just called scale. And basically um, 
let me give you a superhero example. If uh, Darkseid is fighting the Justice League and he backhands Batman. Now, Darkseid is quite superhumanly powerful. Like, he can go yeah. to a Superman. So, by all accounts, a decent backhand should just completely crush Batman, turn him into chunky salt, <laughs> right? Up, right? But instead, Batman goes flying back and slams against the car, and he's quite obviously bruised and battered, but he gets back up. Right. So one of the big things in scale is what we do is we determine the difference between dramatic damage, which is to uh, characters and, and things that matter, and narrative damage, which is a sort of more environmental effect that, that ripples outward. Um, you know... So you could you could destroy a building perhaps, but you still have to hit hit the bad guy three different times before he goes down. Right, and that's sort right. of a lot of what we baked into the system. Now, you're right. In the first edition, um, a lot of people's games broke down at the demigod level because a lot of it was more hero plus. It was just heroes and their powers, but with bigger numbers and flashier things, and. As we discussed before, the storyteller system is not really designed to handle huge numbers and giant dice pools like that without the math breaking down. Right. No, not, again, no knock on any designers. It is That is a mistake you needed to make before you knew not to make it. Right? Right. So what I wanted to do in Demigod in second edition is make it feel substantially different than Hero Plus because we'd already set down that scaling mechanism that scaling mechanism was already in place, but I wanted things to feel different than just, oh, instead of throwing a car, you can throw a truck. You know, that's it's it's not exciting to me. So, right. there's two major components to what we did, to what we did: the mechanical part and the role playing part. Um, the mechanical part is that we wanted to make miracles and your feeling of divinity of of being an aspect of the world. Because you're you're a burgeoning god and you're building your godhood and demigod actively, um, we wanted to make that feel as if you were really pursuing that thing and your divine power was just sort of emanating outward from you. So we have a system called casual miracles where where things just sort of happen around you, and if you invest in them at all, um, other characters can take advantage of that. If you're a burgeoning god of fire, mm -hmm. um, everything around you becomes more flammable and. You know, tempers flare much more easily, and inspiration strikes much more readily because those are also metaphorical applications of fire. Everything around you is more fiery because you are fire itself. Right. The narrative version of that that we wanted to go through is that I wanted Demigod to feel like a liminal state between, um, between hero and god. Whereas origin is sort of is sort of a liminal state before hero, and uh, I wanted to encourage the players to design tight story arcs that that take them through a number of set milestones to become gods, and I also wanted to set up a failure state where you could fail to become a god if you failed too many of your milestones going through. So that impetus, that drive to get to godhood. Is, is there present in demigods. And the act of becoming a demigod is basically announcing to the world, I'm going to become a god or I'm going to die trying. I, I just want to ask you, you know, how do you feel um, when your your product, this, you know, this book that you've worked your your tail off to, to produce, to, you know, work with and collaborate with other writers. And I believe you guys 
posted it to Kickstarter yesterday. Yes. And as of now, it's already at $82,635 out of (laughs) (laughs) $35,000. How does that make you feel as a creator, as a developer, when you go, it was up for a day and like, we did it. Like, this is awesome. It feels great. And it feels like the the interest in the line is really there. And everything that comes after that is gravy. Um, We can fund a companion line for it. We can... um, go out and make more books for it. I think right now in drive-thru RPG, Titanomachy, which is a scion supplement for uh, for enemies, is uh, number one still. Mm-hmm. And I think um, Heroes of the World, which is our, our... Yeah, Mysteries of the World, I'm sorry, uh, is our hero companion, is number six or so. So, you know, Mysteries of the World was generated out of the hero Kickstarter, mm-hmm. but... Titanomachy wasn't, and those books get produced more, and we have more teams working on them as long as interest is expressed in them. Yeah, it's uh, it, you know, it's a game that I'm coming into um, very recently, but uh, I'm I'm really enjoying. There was a whole host of like White Wolf games that didn't exist within the world of Darkness, and I was pretty much like, you know, just solidly planted in the world of Darkness that I never bothered to you know, maybe I played once or twice or just never bothered to pick up a book. And now, you know, I'm discovering games like Scion for the first time and just like kind of kicking myself because I wasn't into them before. But, uh, you know, seeing that they are just like beautiful games that are, uh, you know, a ton of fun that really still kind of like have that, you know, not necessarily the atmospheric feel of, of other like world of darkness games, but have like the familiarity because those systems sort of, you know, spawn from one another. So um, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And, you know, I can't wait to see what's next for, um, you know, for Scion after Demigod um, and how this Kickstarter helps you guys to create more, um, Cause I mean, I, I think you guys are doing a great job. That's basically long story short. Um, I think it's awesome too. Um, <laughs> I appreciate, I appreciate it. Um, yeah. If you know the history of white wolf at all, it's interesting to see where these games kind of fall in, in the cracks. For example, uh, Trinity, mm-hmm. uh, which was the, the white wolf sci-fi space opera game. Yeah. Um, came up after a previous pitch called exile was essentially canceled. And I believe Mark Reinhagen took it with them when he left the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and they need to fill a production gap in the schedule. So Tr- Trinity was made in about nine months. It was called Aeon at first. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, and MTV sued and <laughs> that had to be, that had to be changed. Um, and then it got, it, it, it got welded on to a superhero game that had already been pitched and was already in the works essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I mean the 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 system innovations in those are really fascinating, and I definitely saw a lot of like really cool powers in them. Like I I remember looking at like the the, the way that aberrant powers worked, and I was like, why don't elder vampire powers work like this? Right. right? <laughs> like this is this is pretty cool. And Exalted is my was my first role playing game credit. Uh, Exalted is uh you know, the role playing love of my life, basically. Um, so. I really got deep into the system design for that and the weeds for that. And that's how I learned uh, how, how these systems work and how to take them apart. 
So I heard that uh, um, your first like foray into um, I don't know if it's like role playing period, but into like tabletop role playing games um, was the original Vampire the Masquerade computer game. Is that correct? It is correct. The Vampire the Masquerade Redemption with with my boy Christoph. Yeah, I, and I was gonna say, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, we we get to you know add our creative juices to something that we love. I want to know how did you prepare for, did you play the game a bunch before you, you wrote the the chapter with him in it in uh, Beckett's job diary? Um, I watched long plays on YouTube. I, I did not feel like slogging through the game again. <laughs> and I wanted to be able to click ahead from some of the really laborious combats uh, yeah. to just get the dialogue and just get the feel. But I did watch a lot of the game. And, um, um, it's a, it's a lot of, a lot of fun to, you know, go back and, and kind of look at those games, but I agree with you. I'm, and, it, and it's exciting to write about characters that get picked up in the larger world of darkness. I love what a lot of the other partners are doing for them at the end of the teaser trailer for shadows of New York. There was, um, a, a brief shot of Catherine Weiss, who mm-hmm. is a Katarina, the wise, yeah. as you may know, and Christoph Sire. And, um, I, I loved working with that character and I can't wait to see what other people do with it. Do you, well, you probably couldn't even answer if you did, but do you know, are there any kind of plans to use more of those characters that uh, pop up in Beckett's Jihad diary and in fifth edition? Cause it seems like as of right now, you know, the use of those characters is very limited. Um, obviously there's a bunch in Chicago by night, but they're not really, um, they're not being utilized in the same way they were in a book like that. Do you know, is there anything on the horizon as far as those Uh, characters are concerned? I I'm not really super active in the world of darkness stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I I wouldn't mind it if I was, but my focus has been scion for the last several years. That sort of kept me out of it. Um, I do know that Beckett's Jihad diary as the official bridge between V 20 and B five was, you know, very, very well received. I know that, um, Certain elements of the meta plot uh, just follow follow the the way the events are told in Beckett, right? And and it's sort of assumed to be mostly canon at this point. Um, and so that's all very gratifying to me. That's all very gratifying to see, to hear, and it, you know, it was really was a huge labor of love. So yeah, I don't know if they're going to be using those characters a lot, but I hope so because those characters really do represent the best of vampire in a lot of ways and then the greatest hits. And I think the strength of vampire, the masquerade is definitely in a lot of the characters and definitely in a lot of the feeling of a big, massive world. Yeah. I, I would tend to agree with you. I mean, I think that that's really how the game was sort of presented in the, in, in its original form. And um, I think it's the one thing that's kind of really left it uh, growing and continuing to breathe, you know, pun intended um, is the, the capacity um, that you have to just sort of lose yourself in that world. Um, so I want to ask you, you know, the, the kind of obvious question I've, I've asked a lot of people and everybody kind of has a different answer. Um, you know, we're, we're going through kind of a, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it kind of a shit storm recently with COVID. And, you know, I'm just curious as a creator, um, as a producer of, you know, content as, you know, someone who's out there, you know, writing and creating these new games, what kind of challenges have um, been sort of lobbed in front of you over the last few months while trying to create um, this new material? Well, 
It's not great, Nathan. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> God, what an understatement that is. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the, the safety and security of our freelancers is of paramount importance. It always has been and always will be. Yeah. Um, and so we try to take that very seriously. And so we try to be, if anything, this is really tightened communication among a lot of the teams because people are more free to basically say, I, I can't finish this draft or I can't do this or that. Um, because even though by all rights, oh, you're stuck at home, you have plenty of time to write, this is an enormously stressful time for many people because of a, a, a huge variety of reasons. Yeah. And I, I haven't left my house in six months. So, you know, that's been fun. <laughs> um, it's enough to drive a person crazy. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, communication has really been a big thing, keeping people motivated, keeping people feeling happy and just checking in. Yeah. And making sure that we know that we value our freelancers more than we value. We, we absolutely value on-time drafts and we absolutely value professionalism, but our, the well-being has to come first and it has to come first for them too. Yeah. And, you know, I'd much rather a freelancer come to me and be like, I, the, you know, all the stress is getting to me. I just can't do this and say, and I can say, okay, because then we can work with that and I can take it off their plate and I can reshuffle the work around rather than injuring themselves mentally or physically trying to push it forward. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nobody wants that. The role-playing game industry is actually very small and a lot of people know each other. And a lot of people are friends with one another and we're all, we all have a sense of camaraderie here. So the camaraderie has been the only silver lining out of this whole event, really, that uh, our teams feel a lot more close now. Yeah, I would have to agree with you in that regard. Um, obviously, I'm not um, you know, writing manuscripts or anything like that, but just sort of being forced to sit in front of a computer, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day and sort of not leaving the house, not making plans for, you know, going to this thing or that thing. It's really sort of put front and center having to communicate with people that, you know, necessarily you wouldn't have previously. And yeah, that that's the one silver lining I can, I, I can, I could give you as far as this stuff is concerned, but uh, um, yeah, it's, it's trying, I think all around and um, it sucks, but Thankfully, there are people like you, people like Matthew Dawkins, people like, um, you know, the contributors to these books that are letting us fans still sort of find that fun and escapism. So, you know, I I appreciate it. I appreciate what all of you in the gaming industry do as far as, you know, creating these 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 experiences for us. And hopefully sometime very soon we can have people back at our tables. Um, Absolutely. Right now. <laughs> you know, not right now, um, at least not my friend group. So um, speaking of having people at your table, um, I, I had in my research and, uh, you know, just sort of like in my my general use, um, I noticed that you you have some actual plays on the Onyx Path uh, Twitch channel. And, you know, there's some stuff on YouTube as well. Uh, let me ask you, what do you find like... Um, what is the most sort of challenge, uh, the biggest challenge you have as a creative, as a writer, as a contributor for like actually trying to get a bunch of people together in front of a camera and role play? Because to me, that's a different, that's a different world than, you know, sitting down and writing and developing a book. Like what is the most challenging part about trying to do that 
So um, definitely, uh, you know, part of the reason I'm not on um, webcam right now is because I just purchased a new computer and I have not yet purchased a, an associated webcam with it. And I was actually looking for ones that would, would do streaming a little bit better because poise and the way you conduct yourself and, you know, makeup and <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. serious. Like, no, I know. <laughs> um, you know, make makeup and uh, you know dress is all critically important in a way that it isn't just in a game over text or a game over voice or even a game in person. Right. Because you have many, many more people looking at you and looking at you a certain way. So you have to be aware of how you're uh, on camera all the time. And also, I think um, I really love LA by Night. I really love you know, vain pursuit. I really love, um, critical role. I really love a lot of the, the things, but you have to understand that those are mostly scripted Yeah. and, and really it's more of an improv exercise for a lot of the actors than it is representative of a, of a role-playing game period. That's not to say they're all, they're all completely standalone. I know that a couple of curve goals get thrown their way and I don't know their exact methods, but that's, generally the gist of it. And for a lot of the games we run on Twitch, the actual plays, um, those are the game at the table, basically. Right. Um, the, the story guide might assume a little bit more of, uh, of the cognitive load of running the game, but for the most part, we've tried to put it up to the players to act out and emote. So for me, not just being aware of how I'm presenting on camera, but also keeping things moving at the table, keeping the players all engaged, keeping them looking like they're having a good time um, is, is much more important. And that's actually fed back a little bit into the way I GM normally, because now when I run games after I've, I've been running actual plays for a while, now when I run games at home, I'm much better about being breezier. I'm much better about calling an end of the scene. I'm much better about um, keeping things moving or asking a character, how do you react to that? What are you doing right now? What is this? What is that? And right. just stuff to keep everyone involved and everyone focused on the scene. And yeah, I, yeah. I, I was going to say, I, I think that uh, I, I recently had a conversation with someone who runs actual plays um, for, uh, you know, various games, Vampire the Masquerade and mostly horror games. And yeah, I think it was uh, really an important distinction that yeah. that person made where he stated, you know, what you watch on a lot of these actual plays, you know, not to diminish their their quality or their contribution, but they aren't the same as what you're going to experience at a home game. You know, we none of us necessarily are, you know, great improv actors or, you know, working off of a script or what have you. Um, so I think it's really important to, you know, to make make mention of that, that yeah. you know, there there are two different two different experiences you're going to have as a watcher or consumer of actual plays. What I think, what I think the, the, what I think made the, the difference very clear to me is that I heard someone describing those productions as professionals mm -hmm. working at their profession mm -hmm. and we are talented amateurs. Now we can, <laughs> we can, we can be, we can be amazing. We can be great, but we're not, right. this isn't our vocation and we're not getting paid for this in most cases. Right. Right. So, I, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. Who is the professional and who's the amateur there? But no, I get, I well, get what you're saying. I, I totally understand what you mean. By well, that. think of it this way. The, the Olympics are mostly amateurs, aren't they? Right. 
There you go. It's not, yeah. it's not a, it's not a, it's not a question of skill and mm-hmm. it's not a question of talent and ability to, to run the game. Right. It's a method of thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you, you know, just from personal experience, uh, I've, I've been, you know, LARPing since I was like 16 years old. And one of the best experiences I ever had at a LARP was uh, a convention game had hired a professional actor to play the prince. And I'll tell you what, I was convinced but they didn't know any of the rules. <laughs> you know, they didn't know, you know, once, once it came away from actual role play and into something else, then it was when you started to go, Oh, okay. I, I see what the difference is here. Um, do you, do you want me to recount my story of the best vampire LARP? I was not in sure. This, this may make your LARP fans hate me. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't really care <laughs> to be, so, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a couple years ago and uh, I was at the steampunk world's fair with a group of friends when steampunk was all the rage, mm-hmm. you know, I was never super into it and I didn't want to invest in steampunk paraphernalia, but I want to go to a convention and have a good time with everyone. Yeah. Uh, so I cobbled together a nice Victorian style high collar, white shirt, a vest that matched, you know, some nice tweed pants I had, had some really nice gold thread embroidery under the vest. I, I, you know, I wore a, a, a white, you know, the, the white shirt, but then I got a, a kind of a cheap silk tie with a sort of abstract pattern design on it. And to hold it in place, and since I didn't care about it, I used a Tremere pin as a tie pin uh, to hold it in there. And then, you know, I put on some glasses and I looked like a dashing Victorian gentleman, you know, I wouldn't hold up under, under time traveler scrutiny, but I looked okay. I looked better than some people there. So I was walking around the convention grounds. I lost the people I was traveling with and in looking for them, I headed in the last direction. I saw them go down to a large ballroom full of people and everyone was in Victorian costuming, but some folks had very elaborate makeup on. I was like, Oh, okay. So I moved through the crowd after someone had finished some kind of quick speech and someone stepped in front of me and said, what do you think of the prince's speech, uh, noble Tremere? And I, I didn't LARP vampire, you <laughs> see, but I knew something of the etiquette and the hand signals necessary. And I very quickly realized I had wandered into a Victorian age vampire LARP. Now, what I should have said was, was what I should have done is put my hand upon my head and said very quietly, I'm sorry, I'm out of game. I'm not playing. I'm just looking for some folks. And then scurried off. Now, what I actually did <laughs> was take a wild guess at the prince take a deep breath and put a snarl on my face and say, you tell Prince Mithras that clan Tremere, clan Tremere is a backbone <laughs> of the Camarilla. And if he dares to insult us once more, his praxis will be threatened by fire, spell and salt. And then I turned on my heel <laughs> and went off. Apparently it was a whole I think thing. it's fantastic. <laughs> Apparently it was a whole thing. Some Tremere died. <laughs> I, I think that's fantastic. That's uh that's one of the better LARP stories I've heard, quite honestly. <laughs> and, you know, I, and feel- I don't fault you. I don't fault you. You know, you fall into it. You just, you know, when you're in Rome, you do as the Romans. <laughs> you know, I, I occasionally feel bad about it, but I always play heels in, in LARPs when I do mm-hmm. LARP nowadays. And uh, I devote a lot of my experience to building heat. Mm-hmm. And so I thought about it in years past. And I was like, you know, I probably would have done exactly the same thing if I was an actual player in there. I just would have gone for the most chaotic thing possible. (laughs) Well, you know, just be aware if you do have any regrets about it, if, if you ever feel even slightly emotional about it, LARP runs on drama. It just truly does. And what you did was you created an experience for who knows how many people that they'll remember forever and they'll never (laughs) know 
you know, maybe until they accidentally listen to this podcast, who was that damn Tremere that said all that stuff about Prince Mithras? You we'll know? never know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe we will. Maybe if somebody's listening to this and, and they got killed because some Tremere was talking crap about their prince, let us know. So let me ask you this uh, before, you know, I, I give you back your time. Um, you know, out of all the things that you've worked on in the past, out of all the things that you've developed and contributed to, what's like one thing that if you had the opportunity to, you'd love to go back and revisit, if anything? Uh, Wraith. Absolutely, Wraith. Um, so to to kind of close on that, my my entryway into role-playing game stories, I had played a couple of role-playing games before. Like I played D6 Star Wars. I mm-hmm. played Battletech. But I never really got super into them, you know, even though I wanted to. And I didn't even know how to enter into that world. And it wasn't until Vampire the Masquerade Redemption that I was like, okay, this world is super cool. And I really want to know more about it. Yeah. And I went to my friendly local gaming store and they didn't have a copy of Vampire, but they did have a copy of Wraith that was on clearance. So I was like, okay, clearance, great. So um, Wraith kind of became my first entryway into a lot of these games. That game is dark and blew my mind and um i really enjoyed it and working on the wraith 20th anniversary edition was a career highlight for me i also loved orpheus yeah. which was you know that sort of deutero deutero canonical wraith uh game yeah, and it, it occupies a space on my bookshelf it, it does the same on mine it, it, it is it is a wonderful wonderful series um I got to write the Orpheus appendix for Wraith 20 and that is far and away, uh, you know, just, it, it, it's just a feather in my cap. I love it. Um, and I love that I got to do that and I'm forever thankful to Richard Dansky for giving me the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to revisit Orpheus and I'd love to go back into Wraith and I'd really love to, to, to dig back into that ghost world. It was so fascinating and so unique and such an amazing blend of the world of darkness in a way that Wraith didn't often do and a lot of way the, a lot of the other games didn't do. Wraith is, uh, it, it always surprised me that it didn't kind of like sell better than, than it did because yeah, it's to well, me, it's, it's, it's very depressing and you have to spend the entire game shit talking your friends. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's a benefit or if that's a drawback, but, um, yeah, I Wraith is awesome. And, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't wait for, for more in that world. Um, I'd really like to check out the VR game that's coming out. However, I don't have a VR thing, so I don't know how well that's going to go for me. Before we go, um, you know, what's next for the Kickstarter? What's next for Demigod? Um, what's next for you? What's, what's next on your agenda? Well, right now, Demigod is uh, funded, as you said, and we mm-hmm. are funding the, a series of companion books to go along, it and, uh, along with it and eventually novellas. So keep pledging if you want more Scion. It's an expression of interest as much as it is uh, a desire to get the books itself. Um, after that, we have a couple really, really fascinating Scion books in the pike. Um, and I, I'm really excited to, to – some of them haven't been announced yet, and I'm really excited to, for them to be announced. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing I can talk about is Scion God, which I have a pitch for on my hard drive. And as soon as the <laughs> Kickstarter is over, I'm sending it in, and I want to move it to first drafts nice. so nice. we can get rolling on that. Nice, nice. 
Well, awesome. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, and I had, I think it was a great conversation and, you know, I'd love to just uh, chew the fat with you more down the road about world of darkness games and, you know, everything beyond world of darkness, uh, you know, Onyx path and, and even beyond that. So thank you very much. I, I wish you guys the best with Scion. I'm going to be playing it. Um, I'm going to be lassoing in four or five friends to play it with me as well. So, um, yeah, just thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for being a big fan. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to the 2D10 podcast. If you liked what you heard, check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check out our YouTube channel, TWO, the letter D, T-E-N. Don't forget to spell it, you dumb dub. If you want to support us more, go to our website, utilitymuffinlabs.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode. <laughs> Don't judge me.